Hey there! I'm Eric, though men have called me Revolver. <laughs> and I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're going to take a look at Preacher issues two through four. All right. So let's get into Preacher number two, and Hell followed with him. All right. Written by Garth Ennis. Art by Steve Dillon, and as usual, a cover by Glenn Fabry. This one shows the Saint of Killers in front of a mess of dead cops and a burning cop car, holding up a Jesse Custer wanted poster. Now, do we know that he's the Saint of Killers yet? Yes, we do, because last issue, number one, we saw some Adephi angels sending one of their number, an unlucky one, to wake him up, and they got him from Boot Hill, where he had... A coffin on top of a huge pile of skulls with a snake on it so that if anybody tried to let him out they would be killed by that snake and that didn't really work out and that guy got shot in the head but he did wake the saint of killers to hunt down jesse custer and the spirit that's possessing him genesis yeah and uh here the saint of killers is standing with a singularly unhelpful wanted poster doesn't even have Jesse's name on it. Uh, and he's in front of a pile of dead cops <laughs> and a burning cop car. That's a valid point. It has a pretty good drawing of Jesse. It looks a lot like a drawing, less so much like a photo. But uh, you, you know what it reminds me of is that uh, that guy, Luca Dragos. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And his, and his, this is a reference that you do not get. <laughs> this is so obscure, it's never even been published. But he had that poster that said something like, Wanted, I love her, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a really bad drawing of of a generic it, woman. It had descriptions of her features such as, Two eyes? <laughs> Two eyes? Question mark? Uh, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, do you want to recap anything else from last week? Or do we want to jump right into this story? Well, uh, we left... Jesse and Cassidy and Tulip sitting in a diner. The Five Aces Diner. Yeah, that's right. And uh, although they're technically on the run from the law, they didn't seem to be in a ton of hurry when last we saw them. Right. And it's important to mention that these three issues that we're going to cover today continue the flashback from the Five Aces Diner, although that's not immediately shown to us. And there are other flashbacks within this telling. Yeah, so it gets a little complex, but I think the uh, I think that Garth Ennis's writing actually carries you along pretty well. So we open up on a police station, or I suppose I should say a sheriff station, since they're south of the Mason Dixon, where Sheriff Hugo Root is telling another sheriff and FBI agent Dinnings about his encounter with the Saint of Killers at the end of the previous issue. Are sheriffs and deputies, is that a north-south thing? I always thought it was a, an urban-slash-rural thing. We have sheriff departments in the north, but I think that it is a Mason-Dixon line thing, I thought. Hmm, okay. So Hugo Root is telling his story about the encounter between his unit of men and the Saint of Killers. And he reports that... Their guns are on the ground, where Jesse made them drop them using the word of God power that he has last issue. In issue number one. Right. And Hugo Root commands his men to, all of you pick your guns up. One of his deputies named Kenny objected, 
And he said, fuck you, Kenny. And if he pulls his, you open... Then there's this blur, and the fucker's shooting. The other sheriff asks, so he drew on you? Root replies, and what I said, a blur and then shooting. I didn't see no draw. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good line. That's pretty cool. We go into a flashback as we get our title page here with the saint opening up on the deputies. The first shot blows Kenny's arm off, splashing blood into Root's eyes and temporarily blinding him, and he fumbles helplessly as the shooting goes on. Yep, and this is just really gruesomely drawn gunshots here. One of Steve Dillon's artistic trademarks, perhaps, is that he uh, his, his work doesn't hold back on gore. Right, and whenever somebody gets shot in this series, it's pretty gruesome. Generally, we have, you know, body parts exploding outward from the point of impact. Yeah, gruesome without being too, like, anatomically correct. Right. They're often drawn as just sort of, I don't want to say scribbles, but, you know, the body parts that are destroyed will often kind of be just kind of lines leading out to nowhere. Right, right, along with splashes of blood. And... And it's a very cinematic take on it. You can immediately see where the hits are. Yeah. So they are returning fire. Some of the men have indeed picked up their guns off of the ground and are returning fire to the Saint of Killers to no effect. He kills all the deputies except Sheriff Root. And Kenny's last words are, There's there's a good boy. Fuck you, Sheriff Root. Yeah, and then the Saint of Killers just sort of offhandedly shoots him in the face without even looking at him. So Root's the only one left, and he points out to the saint, that you can see I ain't armed, mister. The saint is just about to shoot him anyway, when the helicopter overhead starts firing. Yeah, he replies, reckon you can see I am. And then the, uh, the helicopter, I guess it's not the pilot, it's the helicopter gunner, demands that the saint of killers drop his guns, and tells Sheriff Root to run away. And at this point, we just cut away to Jesse, Tulip, and Cassidy's perspective of the helicopter getting blown up. Right, they see this massive fireball where they have stopped a half mile away. Cassidy stopped when he heard the shooting. Jesse sees the saint walking undeterred out of the flames and yells, Shit! Tulip, get in the truck now! Yeah, and that is... One ugly mug on that Saint of Killers. I mean, he always looks ugly, but on this page he looks especially ugly. Yeah, he's so he's basically the cowboy Terminator at this point. Indeed. And we're back in the sheriff's station. Agent Dinnings points out a flaw in Sheriff Root's testimony. You've got him firing 13 shots from two six-guns. Yeah, and this is another one of my favorite lines in this, is when he says, uh, I guess you Texans are fond of your magic bullets. Root says, fuck you, and then adds... You didn't see the motherfucker. Didn't see him stand his ground and go to work. Them revolvers are antique fucking cults out of a museum, but he hits every shot he tries. He takes his time to cock them hammers. He ain't in any hurry, and he aims like you and me would point a finger. I saw my boys hit him with everything from solid slugs to double-aught buck, and he didn't fucking twitch. Just came through us with a look like he was treading in dog shit rather than killing folks. That's a pretty good speech. Nice job. (laughs) Yeah, I don't mean to read the whole comic book here, but Ennis is on his game. (laughs) Yeah, that's good stuff. Now, Root blames Dinning somewhat for the catastrophe, suggesting that it was FBI genetic scientists that created the Saint of Killers. Yeah, and at this point, his boss, the other sheriff, is starting to get a little embarrassed of him. Yeah, he thanks Root for his report and sends him home 
before he starts talking about the case with Agent Dinnings. I would have included this sheriff's name in my summary, but I could not find it. Yeah, I don't know what it is either. And maybe that's just because we both overlooked it, forgot to write it down, but I'm not actually sure he has one. Yeah, so he's a character by the name of Other Sheriff. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we'll be calling him. (laughs) It looks like somebody burned down the Anvil Church with all the people inside. They also reveal that they can't confirm whether the saints survived the battle because all the deputies' bodies were rendered unrecognizable by the chopper explosion. They can't tell whether the saint is one of the burnt bodies. I see. So, FBI agent Dennings, his theory is that someone laid in 10 gallons of napalm on the church. Right. And then the other sheriff asks if Dennings has heard what happened to Hugo's boy. (laughs) Yeah. So... We haven't actually met Arseface yet. Yeah, this is a long lead into a character who's going to show up quite a bit. And basically the idea is that he was a rebellious kid and Sheriff Root was abusive. Although the other sheriff here kind of speaks approvingly of his abuse as if it was, you know, an attempt to set him straight. Yeah, I I note this line. Hugo tried everything from whippings to putting out cigarettes on his arm and all he got for his trouble was fuck you. The other sheriff doesn't have any problem with this, but to us, it sort of marks Hugo as being an abusive asshole. Right. And that is furthered by the fact that he describes Nirvana, Arseface's favorite band, as sounds like a Down Syndrome fella set to music. Anyway, after Kurt Cobain shot himself, Root's son also shot himself in the head with a shotgun. Root's son, by the way, is Eugene in the TV show. At this point, he has not been given a name. Yeah. So, the FBI agent asks, don't suppose Hugo mourned him too much, hmm? Didn't have to. He's alive. And that brings us to, well, actually, he uh, he has a picture, which he then shows Agent Dennings, and we yeah, turn the page and he see. Says, uh, he says every time his own kids are ill-behaved to remind himself how bad it could be, he looks at his picture of Hugo Root's son. And on him showing Agent Dinnings the photo, we go to the debut of Arseface. Now, Arseface has a severely deformed face, as you might guess. He has sort of a a puckered up mouth with no lips. His eyes are two different shapes from the skin distortion. And he has a, a big divot in the middle of his forehead. Also, his speech is so badly impaired that we need editorial translation boxes to make any sense of it that's right he's subtitled and if we need to quote him we'll be quoting from the subtitled version i have to say despite hugo's abuse it doesn't seem like the comic has a lot of sympathy for Arseface. it doesn't even really seem to consider a possibility why he shot himself besides because kurt cobain did it well have you read the story of you know who yeah no Okay, so so we'll actually get... The events leading up to, to Arseface's fateful decision will actually be dramatized at a later point in the comic. I can't remember if that's an issue of Preacher or if it's its own one-shot or, or limited series, but... Okay, so when we get the time to zoom in, we get a bit more nuanced telling? Yes, indeed. Okay, but for now... Point, it does seem like it's it's very harsh, it's just... Look at the kid who tried to kill himself. Isn't that kind of pathetic? Yeah, he's he's just a, a, a comical figure here, and not one presented with a ton of sympathy. But despite everything that's happened to him, he's he's uh, relentlessly cheerful, at least at this point. 
Yes, yes, and he seems to think that his dad is the greatest. His dad has just arrived home, as we see Arseface opening the door for him, and he runs to bring his dad a beer so they can relax and watch TV together, even though their TV doesn't actually work. Yeah, and with no clue what his father has just been through, he obliviously runs off to fetch a beer while Hugo hangs his head in his hands. Right. Meanwhile, in a supermarket parking lot, we have a conversation between Jesse Custer and Tulip O'Hare, briefly reminding us of three important points. Tulip running into Jesse was a coincidence. She was not in Anvil looking for him. She was traveling with Cassidy, but there's nothing between the two of them. God, no. (laughs) And that Jesse has this word of God power. When he tells someone to do something, they are compelled to do it. Yeah. He also has... A bunch of information in his head that he can't quite sort through. Yeah, now he knows the name of the creature, Genesis. And as they're sitting in the pickup truck in the grocery store parking lot, the sun goes down, which allows Cassidy to climb out from under a tarp in the back of the truck. Yeah, I I wonder how that works, if he has like a supernatural sense of when sunset has come that automatically wakes him up. Yeah, that's a pretty good question. Not that there's anything supernatural about Cassidy. Right. He's a weird fellow. He's a strange guy. <clears throat> but if it, it does seem like if you're under a tarp in the back of a pickup, you can't necessarily actually tell whether the sun is all the way down or just not really filtering into where you are. Right. Maybe he feels or hears it somehow. So Cassidy wants to go buy some new clothes, which is the original purpose for them being at this store before they got to talking. Here is a... A funny moment and a bit of a good character moment, too, as Cassidy takes the opportunity, having just climbed out of the back of the truck, to surprise Tulip in a reprisal for which Jesse forces him to stand on his head using the word of God. Cassidy says, This is dead funny, so it is. Don't do it again. And Jesse makes a sort of offhanded promise that he won't. Right. So Tulip and Cassidy go into the store to buy Jesse some clean clothes. And then another character appears. Yeah, this gives uh, the Duke, John Wayne, an opportunity to confer with his partner yet again. He mentions that he had given up on Jesse before, but now he's changed his mind. Reckon a man can change the way he thinks about his partner. And then he tells him the cowboy who's chasing him, the cowboy who killed those lawmen, is called the Saint of Killers, that he's stared down the devil, that he's so damn cold and rattlesnake mean Satan himself threw him back out of hell, and that the saint is looking for Jesse, but he's not behind all this. I want to point out this information is true and something Jesse didn't know before, which means the Duke is not just something he imagines. Right, yeah. John Wayne is not a hallucination. This is an actual legitimate supernatural experience that Jesse is going through. Not just a hallucination or a coping mechanism. So in Jesse's conversation with John Wayne, he mentions, the last time I saw you, you said, and he trails off, and that refers to a scene that we haven't seen yet. Okay. This is chronologically the first appearance of John Wayne since the beginning of the series. This is his first appearance since the Anvil Church explosion, since Genesis. Right. His appearance in issue number one takes place after what we're seeing now. Right. That happened at the Five Aces. So when Jesse says, the last time I saw you, you said dot, 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 
he's referring to an incident that we'll see later in flashback, but we don't know what it is yet. That's a, He's referring to okay. a scene we haven't seen. Something that made the Duke give up on Jesse temporarily. Right. Meanwhile, inside the store, Tulip and Cassidy are having a conversation about Jesse. Yeah, and she's sort of wondering why Cassidy feels compelled to tag along. And he says, for Christ's sake, it's because I'm fucking fascinated. What's he fascinated about? Well, you saw what Jesse did to the cops. If he can do that sort of thing on a regular basis, the sky's going to be the fucking limit. Ah, so he's kind of thinking of exploiting the word of God a little bit, even though he doesn't like when it's used on him. Right. Plus, he can't wait to see Tulip explain to him about the gun in her handbag. Cassidy shares his theory briefly here that when a man has no secrets from his woman, that's how you know it's real love. Tulip mentions that she really hates Cassidy, and then he launches into Stand By Your Man. <laughs> also, while they're in this store, Tulip is going to pick out for Jesse what will become his iconic costume for the rest of the series. A black shirt, gold collar tips, white jeans, and a black leather jacket. And from there, we go to heaven. Yay! Back in the surreal sort of white blank landscape of heaven there are as we remember from the previous issue two adephi angels of significance de blanc and fiore we find de blanc sitting alone getting sloppy drunk yeah and he's sitting alone at a large elliptical table with about a dozen chairs seated around it right indeed fiore asks de blanc why he's getting drunk it's not because the saint killed a dozen mortals. It's worth anything to DeBlanc to recapture Genesis. What he's worried about is that sooner or later the Grail are going to hear about this. To which Fiore replies, Oh fuck, I think I need a drink. So this is the first mention that we've heard of the Grail, and it'll be several issues yet before we find out what that is. Yeah, we're going to get little hints but it's going to be quite a while before they show up. They will, however, be a major presence in the series. Speaking of needing a drink... Uh, we return to Jesse and Tulip and Cassidy at a bar. And this is still flashback relative to their conversation at the diner. This is a distinct setting that is not the Five Aces diner. Jesse is asking the other two to sit out, what with the cops and the saint being after him. Yeah, he says, now I appreciate the hell out of you, what you've both been doing for me, but it's getting a little above and beyond. I figure uh, from here on in, I'm on my own. But Tulip's not having any of it. She reiterates once again that she's not leaving until she finds out why he left her five years ago. Yeah, you can't trust that guy not to just disappear. No reason she should let him out of her sight. Right. They cash out at the bar, and Jesse lets the waitress keep all of the change, which annoys Tulip because they paid with her last fiber. So they're walking back to the uh, walking back to the car, and Tulip is kind of making fun of him, and he says, "I didn't know." But Tulip's not the only one annoyed at him tipping the waitress generously. Her boyfriend shows up, costing the trio in the parking lot with three more lowlifes. Well, Jesse is not so sure whether he's her boyfriend or just someone who wants to be, or indeed if his interests lie in another direction. <laughs> I remember the line. Um, Jesse basically picks a fight with this guy. I'm saying you're the kind of guy who'd crawl through a perfectly good whorehouse to get to a fat boy's ass. 
The guy takes a swing at Jesse, and Jesse, cool as a cucumber, sticks his fingers into the guy's nose and tears it open. Yeah, worth noting at this point that Jesse has been a preacher for the last five years or so, but he obviously knows how to fight. Yeah, as far as we know, I mean, he has no superhuman abilities when it comes to combat. Uh, Right. His only superpower is the word of God, and, you know, the fact that God sort of has a special interest in him. But, as we'll find out later, his really outstanding fighting ability has been with him for much longer than Genesis has. Right, longer even than he's been a preacher. And that's that is an aspect of his past that we are going to see that is going to be explained. It's not it's not sort of just a contrivance. Right. So they're basically winning the fight until Cassidy catches a knife in the eye. Yeah, I was going to say Jesse's doing really well. <laughs> his uh <laughs> his cohorts maybe not so much. And Cassidy Again, kind of cool, says, uh, hold on a minute, mate, I'll be right with you, as he pulls the knife out of his eye. And then he grabs the guy by the hair and rips his throat out with his teeth. (laughs) And on Tulip and Jesse's looks, he looks up at them and says, something the matter, as he's drinking from this guy's neck. (laughs) Um, This is probably the best page of a comic book ever. (laughs) I guess it depends on how much you'd really been not sure what was going on with the tarp in the back of the pickup there. Yeah, but... But Yeah, this is the the actual reveal. Yeah, and this makes it pretty clear, if you hadn't already guessed, that Cassidy is one of the undead. He is a vampire. And that leads us to another great Glenn Fabry cover. We see Cassidy in extreme close-up, grinning as blood runs down his face. And this is the cover of Preacher number three. And the horse you rode in on. And it's also sort of worth noting here, I think, that Cassidy in this image, in this cover by Glenn Fabry, looks exactly, or almost exactly like the actor who portrays him in the Preacher TV show. It's Joseph Gilgan? Yeah. Yeah, they really, they really are the spitting image of each other. Is it true that Cassidy's look and sort of general demeanor are based on Shane McGowan? Hmm. Is that something you've ever heard? I can't say that I've... There definitely is a resemblance. Okay. But I can't say I've ever specifically heard that he was based on him before. Okay. We open in heaven. DeBlanc and Fiore are still getting drunk. I'm beginning to see why you know who quit, DeBlanc says. And Fiore says, what? DeBlanc replies, seriously, I mean, who in their right mind would want to keep a job like this? It's an absolute fucking nightmare. When the Grail finds out about Genesis, they're going to start the Battle of Armageddon. They've got the fingers on the buttons to do it. And DeBlanc reveals that he sent Pilo to die because he seemed too clean cut. Maybe he was a Grail spy. Yeah, and Fiore's not having that. He He sort of debunks it a little bit. And DeBlanc says, well, then he was a fucking little crawler and he deserved it anyway. Right. DeBlanc says, he was an angel of the Lord. What did you expect him to do? Deal crack? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nonetheless, though, DeBlanc is pretty sure the kingdom of heaven is fucked. And on that, we return to the scene of Cassidy. 
healing the damage to his eye by sucking out as much of this guy's blood as he can get. Jesse and Tulip are understandably pretty freaked out by this. Jesse asks, fuck you do that for? Cassidy says, I was hungry. And so Jesse says, so you figured you'd snack on this fella's neck? Cassidy confirms he is the V word. Yeah. As far as I know, the word vampire is never uttered throughout this series. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's right. The whole never saying zombie and Walking Dead thing, it started here. Cool. Although they do say zombie in the comic book of Walking Dead. And they do say vampire in the TV show of Preacher. <laughs> I see. So, to Jesse's rather astonished reaction, Cassidy snaps back that Jesse's not normal either. He's got the word of God. And Jesse uses the word of God. He orders Cassidy to quit drinking the guy's blood. Right, and this is after the uh, promise he made. Well, maybe not really a promise. It, it wasn't particularly a solemn vow or anything. But the declaration, at least, that he made in the previous issue that he was not going to use the word on Cassidy again. Yeah, and that's certainly how Cassidy takes it. He is pissed off to have the word used on him again. He told Jesse not to do it. Yeah, and Jesse says, I'd have told you to fuck yourself the minute I set eyes on you if I'd known you for a fucking abomination. And then we get a reaction shot from Cassidy and a hard cut to Jesse bitterly lighting a cigarette while Cassidy's truck streams off. And that's a lovely reaction shot, by the way. Yeah. Very complex. He's got he's got some bitterness and some anger and some disappointment all rolled together. Yeah, a bit of a fuck you sneer. Just Steve Dillon's talent for faces on full display here. We cut to two sheriffs leaving a truck stop, and they find at their cruiser the Saint of Killers listening to their radio. <laughs> yeah, I like the way... I mean, the Saint of Killers is normally, you know, nasty beyond... Well beyond what's called for. But in this case, he's just sort of standing there peacefully and he says, You boys mind me listening to your radio a spell? Right. Unfortunately, they recognize his description from Sheriff Root's story. One draws on him and is killed instantly. Yeah, and he promises the other one that if he draws his gun, there's going to be a massacre. And that is where we cut away from this scene for now. To yet another unfortunate eatery the bar that Jesse, Cassidy, and Tulip have just left, where other sheriff and Agent Dinnings are investigating the crime scene. From the lowlife's description, they decide that one Reverend Jesse Custer from Anvil may have been involved in the fight. Yeah, and the sheriff has a bit of a theory about what's going on. He thinks that the Reverend, as described in the witness accounts of the fight, is probably Jesse Custer, and... He also says he can't tell if Jesse Custer is in with the dead uh, until they pull the dental records for 200 citizens. Right, the bodies in the church, like the ones at Sheriff Root's battle scene, are burnt beyond recognition, so there's no way to know yet until Dental comes back whether Jesse was among them. Yeah, now Dennings is skeptical. He uh, says, good enough, coming up empty, might be, kinda. These are all phrases that the sheriff has used in describing his theory, and so Dennings is sort of saying that, that it's coming to a bunch of nothing. But then the sheriff replies, want my officers to look the other way while you take a shot at fucking yourself? 
I also want to point out here that when they get when they get the report, Dennings makes a reference to he's about to call his buddy works on the X Files. So this is an X Files reference from back when X Files was still a relatively new TV show. Right, X Files was on. Well, yeah, it was it was not only on. I think it was still in its first or second season at this point, and and still kind of in the process of becoming a full fledged cultural phenomenon. Right. This, this would have been sometime in 1995 that this issue came out. And then they get a report from a truck stop that there's been a shooting. So because the shooter at the truck stop apparently matches the description of Hugo Root's mysterious cop killer, other sheriff calls for Sheriff Root. And at Root's house, Arseface is enthusing about how cool the sheriff chop is and how he wishes he could ride along on a case. Yeah. Hugo, though, is enjoying this conversation so little that he manages to pick the phone up before it rings. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He picks up the phone and says, Hugo Root here, and Arseface says, Boy, I didn't even hear it ring. And as before, Arseface's dialogue is subtitled here. There's going to come a point in the comic book where they stop doing that so much and just sort of like expect you to make your way through it, and that's a real shame. Okay. I thought you were going to say that he becomes more articulate but no <laughs> all right no not exactly i guess i guess he maybe becomes marginally more articulate because it's at least in theory possible to read his dialogue but i will say that there are big parts of Arsface face dialogue that I, I i have never been able to interpret and in a way that's too bad because the subtitled dialogue gives us a real look at at what he's thinking and feeling and how relentlessly cheerful he is despite the circumstances yeah there's a lot going on in this character's head even though he's sort of being mercilessly used for comic relief nonetheless he does reveal himself over time to be a psychologically complex character and we see the beginning of that right here as as root is getting his jacket and getting ready to go Arseface hides himself in the back of his father's cop car Right. Now, Root has been told both about the shooting at the truck stop and the bar fight. And he is adamant that the bar fight is the one he's going to check out as he takes off. Right. Meanwhile, Jesse and Tulip are laying low in a motel, close enough to the bar fight scene to look out the window and see if the cops are still there. Yeah, and they also, the dialogue here establishes that they didn't do anything silly like pay for the motel room. They just broke in. And that's part of the reason that they're keeping all the lights off. Right, so that nobody sees the lights in the hotel room and decides to look into it. Jessie takes this opportunity to ask Tulip about the gun in her handbag. Right, she, she says we need to talk because she still wants her own answers. But when Jessie asks his questions, she's still unwilling to answer, which basically plays right into his hands and allows him to, to keep things, keep the status quo sort of between them. Right. She won't reveal what she's doing with that gun and what happened in Dallas until he tells her why he left. And this status quo is going to persist for a while. We're going to be reminded almost every issue that these two are both waiting for the other to spill the beans on this. Yeah. So, Jesse starts talking about why he sort of... He's beginning to regret what he said to Cassidy. Right, Cassidy may be a monster, but Jesse points out he's never stood in judgment like that on a fella before. Yeah, and Jesse says, I just had a feeling we could have been friends is all, and I think I heard him. Tulip does not have as high an opinion of Cassidy as Jesse does, and so she sort of says, 
sensitive guy like him. But the fight wasn't actually Cassidy's fault, as Jesse points out. And he says, little fuck leading him, he called me an asshole. And I won't be spoken to like that, not by any son of a bitch alive. <laughs> yeah. Tulip bemoans his goddamn pride, which has been an element of his character for as long as she's known him. And Jesse says, you ain't changed much either. This is the oldest, dumbest line there is. Just happens that it's always been true for you. You ain't never prettier than when you're angry. Well, he starts flirting pretty hard, but Tulip's not really having any of it. If you've got any decent feelings for me, please don't. Meanwhile, Cassidy is following his nose. He comes upon the truck stop crime scene. Two deputies are dead, and inside the building, about 14 customers piled up. All shot. Yeah, and there sits the saint of killers. Cassidy asks him what the fuck he did that for, and Santa Killers says, well, he was keeping a promise to a fellow outside. Also, it doesn't harm his reputation any. The saint knows that Cassidy is with Custer and asks where he can find Custer. <laughs> yeah, and should we read Cassidy's smart-ass response here? If you like it, go ahead. <laughs> he says, uh, no point, mate. You won't be able to hear me. Santa Killer says, that a fact? He says, you'll be too busy screaming your fucking head off when I'm pulling your guts out through your arsehole, fucking bastard. And he takes a swing at the Saint of Killers, who reacts not at all. The Saint of Killers doesn't flinch an inch, and Cassidy apparently breaks his hand so hard that blood spurts out of it. <laughs> yeah. And here we have the first, I think, major continuity error of the series. So, the saint shoots Cassidy in the chest and walks off. Incidentally, when Cassidy walks in, the saint has a bottle of whiskey on the counter that he's drinking from. And when he walks away, he pays for his whiskey with an 1878 gold dollar. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But the fact that he shot Cassidy, and Cassidy, we will find out in a few pages, wasn't killed, because, you know, that's not a, a legit way to kill a vampire, that is actually not consistent with what we'll see the saint's powers being for the rest of the series. Right, not to spoil the essence of the saint, but when he shoots something, it's supposed to die, and so Cassidy being immune just because he's a vampire doesn't quite work with what we know from later on in the series. They were still basically developing the saint's powers at this point, which is why they have this continuity error. Yeah. Back in the motel room, Jesse bangs his head getting out of the shower because he left the lights off. Right, yeah, they're still keeping the lights off so no one can tell they're in the motel room. And Tulip warns him that there's a cabinet right over the sink, but it's too late. Now, when he looks in the cabinet mirror, all he sees is a sea of flame. The bang on his head apparently triggered a flashback, and now he knows where Genesis came from. Shit, you ain't gonna believe this, but the guy was an angel, and she was a demon. Yep, we get another <laughs> well-drawn artistic panel of some angel-demon sex here. Right, Tulip says, well, I mean, what about them? What did they do? And Jesse replies, fucked each other's brains out, near as I can tell. <laughs> Well, their affair was against the rules of heaven and hell, so the parents were apparently both killed for it. Yeah, killed by the seraphim. Right. But Genesis was taken captive. And this is where Jesse figures out that Genesis is neither good nor evil. He's what Jesse refers to as a new idea, and that makes him as powerful as God. Right. He's dangerous because he's a new idea. A new idea as powerful as either of the old ones. This thing I got, 
I think it's as strong as God Almighty. And Jesse also has figured out that whoever was holding Genesis in heaven is probably who sent the Saint of Killers to get it back. Probably also holding the Saint's leash. Right. There's another line that I like here where Tulip asks, good and evil together? And Jesse replies, heaven and hell. Got a feeling they ain't necessarily the same things. <laughs> you know, I, I thought the, you were going to say the other line you liked was, when my mom and dad fell in love, they broke the rules too. Yeah, that's a key piece of foreshadowing. Right. So they step out of the hotel room, and despite all the care that they've taken to not be noticed, Sheriff Root is waiting for them, and he's got Jesse's number. He holds the gun to Jesse's head as a way of announcing his presence, and he tells him that if he opens his mouth and tries to say one word, he's going to blow his goddamn brains all over your fucking whore girlfriend. Well, that's not very polite. He's just pouring the charm on in every issue. <laughs> yeah, as I think I said in our first Preacher episode, <laughs> Sheriff Root is, is probably the only character who actually was made nicer for the TV show because you can't get much nastier than he is in the comic book. Right. And we end this issue on one final reveal as another Adephi runs into the conference room where DeBlanc and Fiore are getting drunk and alerts them that Custer knows about the saint. Yeah. So that brings us to Preacher number four, Standing Tall, written by Garth Ennis, drawn by Steve Dillon. And this cover by Glenn Fabry is certainly quite striking and audacious, although it's held back a little, I think, by the fact that neither Jesse nor the angel look particularly like they do in the book. Yeah, that's a bit true, more so with the angel, who is definitely blonde here and white-haired in the comic. Well, something just looks wrong about Jesse, too. The hair isn't right. Uh, I'm not I'm but, not sure. But this is a pretty amusing image. Jesse has got an angel by the lapel and is reading him the riot act. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the angel sort of looks appalled and maybe a little intimidated, even. Right. So we actually open on a flashback. A flashback back. And how many flashbacks are we in right now? This is just two, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> This is the first time that John Wayne talked to Jesse when he was four years old, up late watching McClintock. Yeah, and it's he says it's not long after seeing my daddy get shot through the head, which is the first time that we find out that that's what happened to his father. Yeah, so Jesse's trauma and his origin story go way back, but John Wayne reaches through the TV, asks him to shake, and he says, You and me are going to be partners. Anytime you need me, I'll be here, son. Because a man can use some advice in a world as rough as this one. Okay, so at this point we return to Root threatening Jesse and uh, insulting his girlfriend. And Tulip kind of gets the drop on him a little bit, but Root has nerves of steel. Right, she pulls her gun and points it at the back of his head and orders him to drop it, but he turns and points his gun right at her. She doesn't take the opportunity to fire, so now they're in a standoff. Yeah, and he modifies his earlier offer, now saying that basically if she tries to to pull the trigger, or if he hears Jesse saying a word, he'll shoot Tulip. Right, and he basically doesn't miss an opportunity anywhere on this page to drop a little misogynist bullshit into his references to Tulip. Yeah, that's right. And in the back of his cop car... His son, Arseface, looks on. Right. And then we have this delightful page of Cassidy driving along. 
Do you want to read this? <laughs> Do you want to read this whole thing? Because it is a whole page, but it is amazing dialogue. Um, all right. Tell me, Dr. Cassidy, how would you treat a large caliber gunshot wound resulting in massive tissue and blood loss? Well, I would obviously recommend drinking a couple of morons worth of fresh blood and letting the wound heal up by itself. But I would first advise that the patient find that saint a killer's fucker and drive a pickup truck right up the bastard's arse at top speed. And what purpose would that serve, doctor? Well, first of all, help the patient to feel more positive, a vital step on the road to recovery. And it would also save one Reverend Jesse Custer from certain death at the hands of said fucker. But doctor, Jesse Custer forced the patient to stop drinking that stupid shit kicker's blood and then went on to call him an abomination. Yes, but careful consideration will reveal that Jesse is not a bad bloke, really, and tempers were pretty heated all around. And if the patient doesn't help, he knows he'll feel bad for at least a year. You're a right mad bastard, Dr. Cassidy. I'm glad I came to you. <laughs> so yeah, Cassidy has had a change of heart and is headed back to help them. That's my ill-advised attempt at an Irish accent. It was not bad. This is probably more extreme, but that's that's fine. And at this point... Hugo Root says that he's going to count to three and then fire. Yeah. He gets to two and Tulip backs down. Yeah, and we see her eyes go wide and Hugo says, Chicken shit. Scared after all, slut. Scared after all. But she's not scared of Root. Yeah, not of you she ain't, says the sainted killers who's standing right behind him. Root thinks this is a good thing, and pistol whips Jesse so he can deal with the saint directly. Get to you in a minute, boy. I owe you for a dozen deputies. The saint replies, Fourteen. So Root orders the saint to draw off, but one look in the saint's eyes and he changes his mind. Okay, (laughs) so it's at this point that Cassidy breaks up the standoff by driving his truck directly into the Saint of Killers while shouting, Your Ma's a whore! <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't work any better than the fist did. The Saint is completely unflapped, stands stock still while Cassidy flies out the windshield of the pickup and lands quite painfully looking on his head. But he lands right next to Jesse, leaving them on their faces in the dirt together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he says, Cheer up, preacher man, you're rescued. To which Jesse replies, asshole, with a smile. So, I guess they're pals again. Right, so Root and the Saint are once again about to draw off. We get a double-page slow-motion montage when yet another interruption occurs. Eugene Root comes running in, begging the Saint not to kill his dad. Duh, comma, duh! Cassidy has an opinion on this. That fellow's got a face like an arse. And it's then that Jesse gets his opportunity to use the word of God. Shouting, enough. Yeah, he orders the Saint of Killers to holster his guns. And the Saint complies. He warns Jesse, I'm going to kill you. And Jesse says, well, maybe someday you will, but not right now. And it's this point that he orders the Saint to bring the angels down from heaven so that he can finally get his answers. And the saint does so, saying, You heard him. Get down here or I'll kill my way across half creation. And then we get this three-quarter page spread of the glorious heavenly host appearing. (laughs) To which Jesse replies, using the word, Cut the shit, will ya? And it's revealed to be just frumpy-looking to Blanc. 
Right, mostly human-looking, blue tunic, white hair. He introduces himself as DeBlanc, first of the Adephi, angel of the Lord our God. And Jesse uses the word to order him to reveal the big secret behind all of this. Genesis, the saint, everything. And DeBlanc does. They'll kill me for this. It's the Lord our God. He quit. It turns out that God has gone on a journey to Earth, leaving the Seraphi in charge of Heaven. He quit the instant Genesis was created. And Jesse infers that God is afraid of Genesis. Right. So here's where we get the sort of the sort of main quest. Of, the sort of mission statement for this first big arc of the series. Yeah. Or maybe the series as a whole is that Jesse is determined to hunt down God and make him answer for what he's done by quitting. Right. He's going to get God to admit that he quit on his people and, and to find out why. And Go I just ahead. want to point out that Steve Dillon's really earning his money in this issue. We got a lot of Jesse in this issue, a lot of the sainted killers, and they both are just awesome with the facial expressions. He also draws action very well. He draws the the glory of the heavenly host when that comes up very well. The standoffs all look very good and are easy to follow. The part where Cassidy drives his truck into the Saint of Killers looks great. Just fantastic artwork. Yeah, and Jesse cycles through a lot of moods here too in his confrontation with DeBlanc. In which we get some interesting admissions. DeBlanc admits that the Adephi didn't actually kill Genesis' father. He was one of the Seraphi, so they're the ones who handled it. Right. He's also got a good line here as Jesse talks about revealing God's absence. He says, you've got the same problem we always have, the atheists. Start telling people God's not there and you'll get the same blank stares you got when he said he was. Right. So that's why Jesse decides he's going to actually find the man himself and make him tell his people what he's done. Yeah, and DeBlanc actually offers, at this point, to remove Genesis from Jesse. But Jesse doesn't want it gone. He wants to use that power. Yeah, it's all part of his quest now. DeBlanc tries to change his mind, but Jesse orders him to get lost. The saint leaves on his own. And Hugo says, be leaving myself. Jesse says, no, we're leaving. You're going to go fuck yourself, he says, with the word of God. Yeah, and he didn't intend it to go the way it did, but by uttering those words, he has accidentally doomed Hugo Root. We cut to morning, where other sheriff and Agent Dinnings have arrived at the motel. The other sheriff is bemoaning the fact that they missed all the action here, too. There's a funny line here. So back in, in issue number two, when we met other sheriff and Agent Dinnings, other sheriff offered Dinnings coffee, and he says... I don't think so. Tastes like someone came in it. Other sheriff replies, I got excited when I heard you were on your way. Couldn't help it. <laughs> so now here is their drinking coffee standing around the motel. Dennings says, you know, ever since I crossed the Mason-Dixon, I've been drinking uniformly shitty coffee. Or did you get all excited again? <laughs> so Arseface runs up and asks if his dad is going to be okay in his typically garbled way. The paramedic that he's talking to actually asks him to turn his face because he finds it too revolting to look at, and he cheerfully agrees. <laughs> right. But we learn that his father's severed penis is stuck in his colon. He uh, cut a, it off and shoved it up his own ass. 
As ordered. Yeah. He took fuck yourself kind of literally. Apparently. Couldn't it just mean masturbating? <laughs> well, that's not much of a... That's not much of a black comedy joke, is it? I guess not. <laughs> it's too late to reattach it, but they say that Hugo will survive. And he asks for his son. This is the first time he's spoken to Eugene since the suicide attempt. Yeah, and this actually really is tragic. We don't have a lot of affection for Sheriff Root, but we do for Arseface because of his relentless positivity and the fact that he's always the butt of the joke. And this is a particularly cruel joke that fate is playing on him, that he thinks that he and his father are turning a new page because his father has finally, like, actually spoken to him for the first time since his suicide attempt. He says... It's all changing for us, Dad. It's a new beginning. Everything's going to be all right now. As he hands Hugo the gun. Yeah, and that very moment, Sheriff Root takes his own life. Arseface runs off screaming into the night. And then we cut to heaven. Yeah, and here we're seeing the fall of DeBlanc and Fiore. They're basically standing on a platform over... A black hole that is floating in the middle of the fluffy pink cloud heaven, surrounded by Seraphi. Yeah, and we've talked about it before, but again, the the way that Steve Dillon can jump from, you know, gritty realistic to completely fantastical without missing a beat is very impressive. Yeah. So DeBlanc uh, angrily wishes the Seraphim luck in solving this problem by themselves. Yeah, DeBlanc sort of is insisting that he's not going to miss the job and he's glad to go. But they ignore him, and the platform disappears, and the two Adephi fall. So that's darn near wrapped up, gone to Texas. But first, we get four hints. Yeah, and the page is just sort of blatantly labeled hints. And that is indeed what it is. A dozen miles from Dallas, Arseface... I'll let you go ahead and read it. Read his speech. His sort of origin of, of Arseface, the superhero. Do you want me to read the incomprehensible version? <laughs> no, no. Go ahead, and, go ahead and read the translation. He says, I will have vengeance on Jesse Custer. Vengeance for the blood of my father. And if I have a face like an arse, so be it. I will become Arseface. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, somebody is telling someone who they call my lord about strange goings-on down south. This important somebody says that it has nothing to do with them, though. He asks for his jar, and he says, Go find Bob and Freddy, will you? On the Louisiana-Texas border, another character hears about these events on the radio and says, Oh, Jesse, oh, you've gone and strayed again. Grandma doesn't like that. And finally, in... How do you pronounce this? La Saint-Marie, Southern France. Somebody is saying, enough for the Grail to take an interest, Terry. Keep me informed. So that's our first introduction to the Grail, but it's going to be a long while before we meet them again. Yeah, and even though he's off panel here, that might have just been Hair Star. Therefore, the first line of dialogue from Hair Star. Cool. But to wrap up the story... We pick up again outside the Five Aces Diner as Jesse, Tulip, and Cassidy walk in. It's two days later, and they've hitchhiked to Houston. Yeah, and Jesse is uncharacteristically narrating. 
Yeah, that's true. He doesn't do that often, but he's doing it on this page. Yep. He's not asking Cassidy any more questions. He's stuck by me, and that's all he needs to know. This is despite the fact that Cassidy disappeared for a full day, came back with new shades, all his wounds healed up, and meat between his teeth. Jesse and Tulip still aren't answering each other's questions. Childish? She started it. Three days tops till I get her into bed. <laughs> yeah, proving that he can win at the childish game. <laughs> he says, the one thing that is worrying him is the Santa killers. It ain't using the word on him that scares me. It's the look in his eyes while I try. And just before he enters the diner, Jesse turns back and sees the Duke throw him a shit-eating grin. And I turn around and throw it right back. Yeah, and in this issue, we don't get the title until here at the last page. Standing tall... And I guess the moral of the story is that Jesse done good. Yeah, and the title incidentally is over this full page spread of Jesse turning back and giving a shit-eating grin. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's looking quite satisfied with himself, but maybe at this point he deserves to be, given how he handled the situation back there at the standoff. Yeah, handled you go, the saint, and the angels. So this is the close of the first story arc of Preacher. We've come full circle and arrived back at the um, Five Aces. Right. So we've arrived back basically where we started in the first issue. And we've introduced most of the major characters. Haven't really seen much of Hair Star yet. I think he's the last major character in this series. Once he turns up, he's going to fill a main character role. Yeah. So, what'd you think? That's a darn good opening. It's definitely a pretty decompressed comic, but four issues isn't a ton of time to spend. And as we talked about last week, they got... Well, last time we talked about Preacher. They got so much stuff into the first issue. So much foreshadowing and so many premieres. So many introductions. Yeah. I I also like that we had John Wayne absent for, for so much of this story arc, which makes it feel like a good payoff when he shows up at the end. Right, right. And, you know, we've sort of resolved the instigating incident of this series while at the same time setting the stage for the bigger story. So Right. Well, yeah, the destruction of Anvil has sort of put Jesse on the path. It is something that's going to come back to bother the characters a little in the next story arc. Right. Yeah. They are, as of as of the end of this book, still wanted fugitives because of their involvement in the various fights and incidents in this, in this arc. Right. What's the name of our next Preacher storyline? The next issue is entitled Say a Prayer for Seven Bullets. I'm not entirely sure if Ennis has an official title for the arc. Right, but we're calling it... I was going to call it Say a Prayer for Seven Bullets, even though that's like the title of a moment in the issue, but okay. (laughs) It's a memorable line. So yeah, I think this arc did a really good job introducing the saint and introducing the conflicts between the saint and Jesse and and seeing their powers play off of each other in a cool way without lessening either of them. Jesse can defeat the saint under very limited conditions. Still a very intimidating villain. I think it did a really good job setting up the jesse cassidy friendship yeah definitely that's one of the one of the best parts is jesse and cassidy have a big fight when jesse finds out that cassidy's a vampire v word <laughs> yes <laughs> indeed 
but they eventually resolve their differences and decide to be pals. And so we've got the trio on the road on their mission with a lot left unsaid between them. So there's, they're, they're sort of a, a coherent group right now. They're sort of a, a group that's going to stick together for a while, but things are not resolved between them. There's going to be some drama there. Yeah, Garth Ennis has done a really good job setting out plot threads, yeah. and you can tell that he planned that he spent a lot of time planning this series before he jumped into it. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, some of these hints aren't going to come back for a dozen issues or more, in addition to reveals about Cassidy and his history and the nature of Genesis. Yeah, the nature of the Grail. Right. All sorts of good stuff like that. Well, I guess that's that's just about it for us this week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we cover Sandman issues 5 through 7. Be here as Morpheus meets the Justice League of America, and we spend 24 hours with Dr. Destiny. See you then. Hey, if you like our show, check out vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got a bunch more episodes, plus show notes for every show. You can also, uh, if you feel so inclined, get in touch with us through vertigize at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.